BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys, episode 85, Prospect Park. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. Thanks for joining us for another adventure through the back alleys of New York City, or this time through a parkland. And not just any parkland, we're going to Prospect Park in the heart of Brooklyn. But you can consider this episode to be a sequel to our two-part Central Park podcast because, in a way, it's a sequel to the creators of Central Park, Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox. So we will be sort of going through the journey of how this park landed smack dab in the middle of Brooklyn. Was built as a response to, you know, an urbanizing America. How these two now superstar architects were brought back into the job. And what about Prospect Park is different from Central Park? And why today it's one of New York's most incredible parks. It's actually bigger than Central Park. And in a lot of ways, it's actually more impressive than Central Park. And I think that the park designers would also think that it ended up truer to their original designs. So take a stroll with us on this lovely spring evening as we inspect the tale of Prospect Park. A lot of New Yorkers know where Prospect Park is, but if you don't live here, you may have a hard time sort of like picturing where it is in Brooklyn in your mind. So, Tom, luckily us- I have a map, Greg. Can I you, have a map right here. Can you visualize that map for our listeners, please? Well, if you compare it to Central Park, and by the way, we should make a pact right now that we're not going to go out of our way to continue to bring up Central Park because Prospect Park, of course, is not Central Park. However, let me just compare it to Central Park for <laughs> okay, one second. Yeah, sure. Central Park is, of course, because it's stuck in the grid of Manhattan, bordered by streets, 59th and 110 and 5th Avenue and Central Park West or 8th Avenue. That makes it a very convenient rectangular shape, correct? A, br- a brick shape. Yes. Prospect Park is 
a sort of sextangular, <laughs> a six at five. It depends a, how you count the sides. A squishy trapezoid it's kind a tra- of shape. Trapezoidal. Trapezoidal. Yes. It is bordered by Park Slope, Windsor Terrace, Prospect Park South, conveniently named, Prospect Lefferts Garden, and Prospect Heights. And and the very busy thoroughfare of Flatbush Avenue just rams right into the top of it at Grand Army Plaza. So it is a massive park. It's 585 acres, really in the heart of Brooklyn. And the park was built in the 1860s, opening in 1867, which of course we'll get into in a second. Inside this park, there are all kinds of features, including a 90-acre meadow, a 60-acre lake, a zoo, uh, Brooklyn's only forest. But the only natural forest, that's right. Right. It's basically divided, you could almost to simplify it, it's divided into like three parts, mm-hmm. kind of. There's the meadow, Right. The long meadow. There is the, quote, hilly part, which is actually kind of like the most wild part with the uh, forests and large hills. Then the watery part with right, the lake. The, la- yes. the lake, which is to the southern end of the park. And every year right now, as we record this in 2009, about 8 million people flock to the park every year. But where did this park come from, Greg? Well, you know, it's very easy, and again, I'm not going to mention Central Park again, or at least for five minutes. It's easy to understand why they put Central Park where it is, because they didn't have a lot of land to work with. Mm-hmm. But why did they put Prospect Park here? Like, why this particular spot? Well, I'll tell you. Now, I'm not going to go all the way back, because in the early Dutch years, of course, it was just farmland. It wasn't much of anything. There were these small villages sprouting up everywhere, including, of course, the village of Brooklyn the, and the village Breuklein. of... And the and the village of Flatbush would develop nearby also as well. But I want to take us actually to 1776, because that's where the action really starts mm-hmm. when you're talking about this area. We all know what happened in 1776. That August, of course, is when the British invaded New York. I believe we have a podcast, even a two-parter on this very we subject. Have, we have a two-parter, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to launch back into the details of the, of the Battle of Brooklyn, but I do have that in that podcast. Mm-hmm. All I'll say is this is that when the British did land in Gravesend on the shore of Brooklyn, they landed with 15,000 British troops, Washington's men, and they needed to come up with some sort of way to block them. So he concentrated his men at various points in, on these roads as these roads crossed through this hilly area. This particular area from here all the way down to like Greenwood Cemetery today um, happens to be very, very hilly. As a matter of fact, these are the highest spots in Brooklyn or around here. So this makes a natural place to defend yourself. So a major altercation happened here, which they call Battle Pass, and it happened on August 27th of 1776, very early in the morning. There was this really heavy thicket along a, a road where some of the soldiers had built an earthen fort, and they were all sort of sitting there, and they were getting ready to pr- protect themselves. They had even chopped down this massive tree, which they had called the Dongan Oak. It was one of the biggest mm-hmm. trees in the forest. They blocked the pass with this gigantic tree. Unfortunately for them, the British had found a way around them. So they didn't kind of go up that path. So all of a sudden, you had our Patriot Continental Army soldiers here completely surrounded. Many of them were captured, murdered right there on the spot. It was a scene of massive bloodshed. So that's why this area is very hallowed ground, especially for American history lovers at this time. And that took place on the land that is today's Prospect Park? Yes, it did. And very nearby that, by the way, happens to be the second highest point in Brooklyn. They called it 
it Prospect Hill or Mount Prospect. Mm -hmm. It's at Flatbush Avenue and Eastern Parkway are today. Right, sort of behind the museum. Yes. Or behind the public library back there. Yes. Now, the curious part, which we will explain, is that it's Prospect Hill, so you would naturally think that the park would be named after it, which it is. Mm-hmm. But the hill is actually not in the park. But it nearly was, which will Yes, get to. it almost was. So time marches on. The Brits are pushed out of the U.S., and N- New York City is booming, as is Brooklyn, I take it. There's a, yes, of course, the rapid development and growth of Long Island in mm-hmm. general, but then the area that we, of course, know as Brooklyn as well. Brought on also by Robert Fulton launching his ferry service in 1840 which made Brooklyn into kind of a commuter town. Oh, absolutely. And all of these uh, land speculators who were anticipating this. And so a lot of people then did move to Brooklyn, especially it also helped to have like yellow fever epidemics and everything in Manhattan that made people kind of scatter and right. so made Brooklyn look a little bit more attractive. So there was a huge development of greater roads and of course then a little bit later than railroads, which spread people further into Long Island and of course all around Canada. Kings County became quite populous. In fact, by 1834, Brooklyn would become the third largest city in the United States. Meanwhile, back at that hill, you know, Prospect Hill, in 1826, it was actually called Hoyt's Hill because it was named for a man who built a lot of roads in this area named Charles Hoyt. He actually... I think we know that name, don't we, from the Hoyt-Skirmerhorn station? Why, yes, we do. It's always nice to connect these sort of you know, no, names yeah. of streets and subway stops with actual people. Charles Hoyt bought up all this land and sold it to a lot of wealthy families who then came out and they built all their big manor houses. So you had the, the Bensons and the Cordelius and the, all of these families built their big houses around here. In 1856, at this other hill called Lookout Hill, which was very close by, also very high, and was also a Revolutionary War centerpiece, they built a gigantic reservoir. A water reservoir here. Keep in mind, this is around the same time that New York is getting its Croton water service. So they're doing the same thing here in Brooklyn. But that is a reservoir. We're not talking about a park yet. Nope, not yet. It's still private land and mostly forest Right. right here. But this is also getting into the time period where people start thinking about giving some kind of respite from the urban chaotic existence that most people were beginning to feel. Yes. So there needed to be a place to go, to relax, to be back in nature. If you were in Brooklyn, you know where you had to go if you wanted this sort of like park-like experience? You went over to Greenwood Cemetery, which is pretty close by, yeah, and eight, which was built in 1838, and people did go there for picnics and whatever, but it's not the same thing. <laughs> it really isn't. It doesn't quite have the sense of joy. So in, a- in 1859, the Brooklyn Eagle even proclaimed that Brooklyn no longer wanted to be a suburb of New York. And in order to do that, it had to foster its own park system. So along comes one of the heroes of our story. His name is James Samuel Thomas Stranahan. Mm-hmm. Now, he was a very well-known, very influential Brooklyn leader at the time, a railroad contractor, very prominent politician. And he had um, his own share of real estate holdings as well. He had his fingers in a couple pots. Later on, he would be the president of the New York and Brooklyn Bridge Company. You know, he was one of the big proponents for even consolidating Brooklyn with Manhattan. But in 1859, he was actually, he was a, he was, had been a, he was a former alderman. He wasn't even an alderman anymore. He was a member of the Metropolitan Police, but he was very wealthy and had a lot of pull. So he organizes what, what was called the South Brooklyn Association to actually start work on a park. 
Through his influence and the influence of a lot of his very powerful friends, New York State actually authorizes a committee so that they can come up with a park. Stranahan was then made parks commissioner, so the very first parks commissioner of Brooklyn. But it seems like there's a little bit of conflict of interest here, isn't there? Because he also was predicting that a park would increase land value as he was also a developer himself, a real um, estate... This is how it's done in the 19th century. As and, I mean, some of the people that he kind of reeled in to sort of help him with this project were other people who would financially benefit from this and greatly. People like the head of Brooklyn's Tammany Hall, Hugh McLaughlin, for instance. On his side, he also got the editor of the Brooklyn Eagle, William Kingsley. I mean, that's pretty good. Get the person who's making the newspapers. I mean, that's going to help your cause. So Stranahan gets the green light, and from here, he just needs to, what, design a park, right? I mean, with a purchase, 300 acres. Part, part of this is in today's park, right. but part of it is not. Because we're talking about a 585-acre park. But we're starting here with about 300. And on top of it, it's 300 that include this Prospect Hill, this right. Mount Prospect, okay? Because it's already being used as sort of like a pseudo-picnic area. People are already, like, off-roading it here. Well, and what a vista. It just seems so obvious that the hill would be part of any park. So now, I think this is probably where my friend Egbert Vili comes into the story. Exactly, because now we got they have to come up with some plans. Like, who's going to design right. the park? Well, Egbert Vili, Egbert Ludivicus Vili, Greg, and that's Vili, V I E L E. That's correct. It's Vili. His that's name, v- Greg. Vili. Vili. Anyway, lame jokes aside, Vili was in the war. He was a general. He was all these. He was a civil engineer. He was a gifted man, and he really wanted to design a park. He presented actually his own plan for Central Park, but Vili's plan for Central Park was tossed aside because, of course, they went for Vox and Homesteads. Vili then came up with another plan in 1861 for Prospect Park, which at the time he called the Mount Prospect. Park. It did center around the hill, of course. The problem is that Flatbush Avenue was already there, and Flatbush Avenue went straight through Vili's proposed park. Okay, it's a bit of a problem. Well, I mean, he didn't really see it as a big problem. In fact, he planned a pedestrian bridge that would go over Flatbush and a little pedestrian subway that would go underneath okay. so people could get around the busy road. Sounds It sounds nice. It also sounds a little disruptive. But you know, Greg, you have to remember that the view from the top of the hill was so amazing. <laughs> So who cares if you might get hit by a carriage or something? It's not worth it because you've got that view. You've got the view. That was the, okay. Now, unfortunately, the Civil War came along and interrupted these plans. One of, one of many things that were unfortunate about the Civil War, that these right. plans no, I'm were sorry. stopped. I'm speaking specifically <laughs> okay. about Prospect Park right okay. now. Prospect Park's plans were shelved. After the war, however, Stranahan and some other from the planning committees were just not quite sure about this whole Flatbush thing. They were a little bit uneasy about it. So they asked their friend and Central Park planner, Calvert Vox, to just look over the designs, and uh-huh. see what he thought about the proposed park. Now, to, to sort of put this in perspective, it's just Vox at this time, because what happened is around 1863, 
Olmstead just got a little bit annoyed with the whole process of making Central Park. And I mean, they both were such superstars of architecture right now and of landscaping and of these big civic projects. And they'd really created the whole field of landscape architecture. They were the foremost firm. So he, I mean, he got out of town. Like literally, he went out to California and he was working on, on a few projects, including he decided to open a mine for some reason. Olmstead did? Yes, he decided to open a mining company. So that he's out there, but Vox is still on the East Coast. He looks at Veely's plans, and frankly, they've already tossed out one set of Veely's plans over at Central Park. Vox is not a real fan of Veely. He kind of sees him as sort of beneath him in terms mm. of talent. So he takes the whole proposal, throws it off the table, and so what he proposes then is, well, why should the park go on either side of Flatbush Avenue, just by additional land, by land south and mm -hmm. land that's on the west, land that would be more jagged and more a rough area. And just avoid Flatbush altogether. Exactly. Just, just kind of change the rules of this park. Like, just make a new shape of it. You avoid this sort of catastrophe of Flatbush <laughs> altogether. So, of course, Vox is interested in this project and wants to start it, but he needs Olmstead because, let's be honest, Tom, Olmstead is the hall... And Vox is the oats. <laughs> they and need got to have somebody hauling oats. Yes, they need each other. Right. But they also like don't love each other. So here's so they had a correspondence between the East Coast and California, in, trying in an undisclosed mine. At, yes, in a mine. Well, he went. He was doing a lot of things, but one of the things was a mine, which which actually flopped. He went out of business. Mm. Olmstead was a very egotistical man, but he was also very brilliant. But the letters between them get kind of bitchy. He complains about his egotism, even as he's sort of stroking the ego. I read a biography of Oxford I found really fascinating. That it was a quote, he has a psychological bondage to Olmstead because Olmstead is sort of like the one that gets a lot of the credit. In fact, he has one quote in a letter that says, Alone, I am a very incomplete landscape architect, and you are off at the other end of the world. It's almost like a strange love letter, isn't wow. it? So Vox was kind of a Shirley to Olmstead's Laverne. Yeah, I, yeah, I would say Schlemado, Schlemazo. Yeah, of course. Incorporated. <laughs> okay, Olmstead does finally come back. Vox is officially hired in June of 1865, a month after the war ends, by the way. Olmstead will be back in town by November. They draft up their plans in 1866, and it is one of the finest architectural documents of the 19th century, their proposal for this. It in the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. 
Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So far-reaching. It's, ama- it's absolutely amazing. First of all, the park itself. You know, they want to create this place that has a lot of mystery and variety, almost like tableaus. They were really into unspoiled nature, even if it was man-made and created oh, yes. to give this effect. It was they, a whole movement. Especially, they, com- right, com- especially compared to Central Park, they want to ramp up that rusticness to augment the natural beauty right. that's already there. They're really excited about creating this long meadow because mm-hmm. they couldn't do anything like this in Central Park because of the shape, but now they finally could. Right, it's not a straight meadow, right? It sort of like hooks around. And, you know, that part that had Mount Prospect and the reservoir, that part in their plans would be completely sold off, and all these other parts would be included. And as opposed to Central Park, they didn't have to deal with the crisscrossing little streets that were going through. They could use all this self-contained land to create a lot more different kind of special effects. But on top of that, Tom, what I find actually kind of amazing is they reached further than just the park. They almost they were reaching into sort of like proto-urban planning because they had already thought of creating a neighborhood nearby, you know, maybe a neighborhood along a slope, maybe a park slope, if you will. Mm. They had that in mind. Um, they also wanted these parkways to emanate kind of out of the park so that people could come to the park. But even as they're going along these ways, they would also be green and full of foliage and very natural. And that's actually where we get to the Eastern Parkway and the Ocean Parkway. This is sort of the seed in which those come from. They actually planned a lot more parkways, but those are the only two that were really built. Everyone loved it. Everyone loved these plans. So all they need to do now is sort of scoop up some of that land. But some of it does not prove easy to obtain. Well, does and it? they right, but it's not just small houses because this is already quite a nice neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They weren't planning Prospect Park and they'd be criticized for this. They were not planning Prospect Park in the poorer neighborhoods or neighborhoods where people really needed to get out of their urban existence the most. The park was centered around wealthier mansions and things were all over the place, estates. Including the Litchfield family villa. Now, in 1852, Edwin Litchfield uh, bought a square mile of swampland that just spanned down toward the Gowanus Canal. And in 1857, he hired A.J. Davis, the architect, to build this Italian Renaissance-style villa. And he named it Grace Hill after his wife, Grace Hill. No, no, no. Her name was Grace Hill. (laughs) Grace Hubbard. Um, The building itself was a romantic mix of turrets, towers, wraparound porches, four stories, a building with multiple balconies. I mean, you can imagine this romantic gorgeous, detailed building. Well, you don't even have to imagine it because it's still standing. The villa itself was on land that would become purchased for the park. And this is how they did it back then. They just condemned the building (laughs) and forced them to sell it to the Parks Commission. In 1885, actually, after the park was opened, the park's administration offices moved 
into the villa. But in so moving in and over decades and even a century since, it's been really sort of administratively transformed oh. into a house of offices and whatnot. So a lot of the beautiful detailing inside has been lost. There have been some preservation, notable preservation efforts. And that sort of underscores the irony here is that this particular land is what they spent the most on. Litchfield kind of built the city. It was it cost them one point seven million dollars, or put it more mathematically, forty two percent of the total amount of right. land expenditure was just on this little part. And this part, Greg, continuing with the mathematics only represents about 5% of the park's complete surface area. In total, it would cost about $4 million to acquire all the land and $5 million to then create the park. So construction began in July of 1866. Olmsted, believe it or not, actually became the supervisor of construction of the entire park. He didn't just run off to California? No, he stayed there. As a matter of fact, he had a little house in Staten Island, and he ferried uh, every day to Brooklyn. The project required about 1,800 workers, and I love how they're like, oh, we're going to leave the naturalness. It doesn't really need to augment it. Well, they augment it with more than 70,000 trees and shrubs. They were actually moving trees for years. Um, Alone in the year 1872, they moved 284 trees, which is a very precise number. It actually, believe it or not the park actually opened for the to the public the year after they started this partial park had a hundred thousand visitors to it and as we discussed in the central park podcast it was hard you know when a park is of that size is under construction it's hard to keep the public outside the park they're gonna like they're gonna crash in no matter what that's very true i mean they they keep building things and true enough property values do skyrocket all around stranahan Um, was right he was totally right the the as we know park slope then becomes a very tony neighborhood they would continue building well into 1873 and they probably would have built a little bit later. But unfortunately, with the panic of 1873, this big financial panic, they kind of stop things that they're doing. I mean, it's pretty much finished at this time. An unfortunate result of this panic, though, Tom, is the permanent dissolution of Olmsted and Vox. Oh. They finally go their separate ways. Vox, of course, then later, a little later on, would go on to design the Natural History Museum, would, would focus more on architecture. Prospect Park would be a huge success for Brooklyn, of course. One writer would praise its beauty, calling it one of the great artistic creations of modern times. Hefty statement. But like Central Park, the way they designed it and laid it out didn't really stay that way for long, did it? They were all about nature stage managed. Sure. If I could say that. I mean, they were all about the babbling brooks, the densely planted forest with magnolia trees. This ravine that looked like the Adirondacks. The waterfall, right. The scenic overlook that you would just happen upon in your carriage when you turn the corner. Right. I mean, they really had managed this thing and art directed it within an inch of its planted (laughs) life. Yes. You know. So... That was what they were going after, and the entrances were even kind of rustic. They had these, you know, wooden fences that would Mm -hmm. welcome you into the park. It was a place that you went to relax. Mm -hmm. Gazebos. Exactly. Well, that didn't really stay in fashion as we got closer to 1900, because neoclassical buildings imposing structures, tributes and statues to civic leaders fallen. Classicism, Beaux-Arts, everything. Everything's happening in the turn of the century. This is what was coming. The Gilded Uh, Age. So why keep a sort of rustic fence 
why would that welcome you to this <laughs> prospect park when you can have a giant colonnade? Of course. That looks like St. Peter's Piazza in Rome. Build it big. In 1888, our friends at the McKim, Mead and White's architecture right, firm yes. were hired to redevelop the main entrance of the park into a grand public space with Renaissance flourishes similar to the great European plazas. Mm-hmm. The most major redevelopment was that one at the intersection of Flatbush, Vanderbilt, and Ninth Avenues. In 1869, it had simply been this small fountain with a statue dedicated to Abraham Lincoln. But that just seems so facile. And the <laughs> In the, in the Gilded Age, you're going to have the entrance to your park just be a little fountain. Right. It seems so underused, so just underutilized. So the new plaza was given many things. Stanford White gave it columns topped by eagles. John Duncan designed a memorial arch that was finished in 1892. And a fountain occupied the center of the plaza. Currently, it's the Bailey Fountain uh, that's been there since 1932. This entire plaza then took on the name Grand Army plaza in 1926 oh gotcha for the okay. 60th anniversary of the union victory in oh, the civil war triumphal and that isn't the only example of this neoclassical building the famous boathouse was built in 1905 which is one of the my personal favorite parts of this park the boathouse it just every time i see it it just doesn't even look real it's so beautiful mm. and so this is i didn't realize this was from this period yes helmley huberty and hudswell the architecture firm designed other notable brooklyn buildings also in the neoclassical tradition mm-hmm. so there was a flurry of construction significantly changing the original intentions of the park. Well, since we've been on the subject of dramatically altering parks, isn't it about time to bring up Robert Moses? Oh, let's do. <laughs> well, the with the merger of with New York, of course, in 1898, Brooklyn then becomes part of New York, and its fate is tied up into, of course, the entire park system of the entire city. The park kind of deteriorates in the 19-teens and 20s. Not a lot happens until Robert Moses then comes on as the parks commissioner for the entire city. It's funny because I feel as if we often talk about Robert Moses in a negative sense. Greg. Let's just face facts. I feel like we're somewhat biased. We know that it's a his conflicted character, and and most people see the the things that he did to New York City as having two faces. Mm-hmm. You know, right? We just usually see the scowling face. But in fact, when he what happened is when he came, he gave a lot of attention to these parks that were sort of deteriorating, that didn't have a, a lot really going for them, that really right. could have like become dangerous places. And he was the parks commissioner, and he came in and he pumped more money. He fought for more money for the parks, and he wanted to get people into the park. Um, The problem, especially here, but also with Central Park, is he could not stand Olmsted and Vox. He could not stand this philosophy. What, do you have like a bunch of bushes there? I mean, what's that doing there? What's that? Is that helping people? I mean, can people do something there? Mm-hmm. You know, he was more about playgrounds and, and big structures in the park. Right. Places that people could go and spend money and hang out. And have uh, fun. Not about this foliage junk all over the place. Things that he brought to the park include Prospect Park Zoo 
1935. Four years later, he brought the band shell. And uh, many, many, many years later, actually on his way out as park commissioner, he graced Prospect Park with the Woolman Rink. Ah, yes. But he ripped down a lot of things that were these sort of older style structures. The dairy was ripped down. This actual lake where Woolman Rink was, there was a little island called Music Island where orchestras would sit and perform and the music would drift lazily across the water. Wow. All of that was just completely redone. Today's Prospect Park is actually a a synthesis of, Mm -hmm. of course, all of these three, these style from the the Olmsted and Vox and the McKim Mead and White phase and of course the Robert Moses phase. Well, and it continues too because you mentioned as he was going out he brought in Woolman Rink in 1960 but by that point there was again another period of deterioration and neglect as the park budget was being slashed. There was just general neglect. So things were kind of falling apart. So by 1966, the 100th anniversary of the park, there really wasn't much of a celebration because the park was in a pretty bad state. In fact, in 1979, Greg, and now here we are in that 70s and 80s (laughs) section of the podcast, less than 2 million people visited Prospect Park. Compare that to 8 million currently. They're doing it today. That's yeah, A quarter of the amount of people. And why is it? Because it wasn't really that much fun. It wasn't that safe, perhaps, and things were in not very good shape. So how did this park pick itself up? We, we, we learned from, the, from Central Park that it was a community, uh, that the community kind of came out and sort of began to lift it up. So how well, and this... it's the same thing here, okay. too. There was a group called the Friends of Prospect Park that organized efforts, mobilized the community to restoring the park. And a concerned group of citizens actually went to Mayor Ed Koch. $10 million was given by the city to restoration projects inside the park. And throughout the 1980s, major structures, including the picnic house, the tennis house, the Oriental Pavilion, and the band shell were restored. So the park was starting to pick itself up. And along came, in 1987, a group called the Prospect Park Alliance. This important group of private citizens works with the Parks Commission and also with private money and donations. And still does today. And still does today. It looks for ways to preserve the park while reaching out to new communities and new uses for the park. Do you know there, there are four buildings right now in the park that are in the National Register of Historic Places? Namely? Um, the Peristyle. The Boathouse, the Litchfield Villa, mm-hmm. and then finally, a place called the Lefford's Homestead. That homestead, Greg, that very homestead that you're talking about, yes, is located today in the Children's Corner over by the Carousel and the Zoo. Zoo, yeah. It was, did you know it was built in the 1700s by a Dutch family that traces its roots all the way back to a Dutch colonist named Peter Janse Hagavut. Yes, who settled in the Dutch colony of Vlakabos, which (laughs) means wooded plain, which would become Flatbush. Ah, you so, see? Yes. So that's where this so this house it was in right in Flat Bush. It was actually burned during the Battle of Long Island that you were talking about oh. before in mm. August of 1776, but by the Americans who were trying to chase out the British. And then Peter Lefferts, who was the great-great-grandson of Hagavut, rebuilt the homestead uh, in 1777, 1783, and the family lived there until 1918. Here's the confusing part. In 1918, it was donated to the city, 
and then moved into the park. So it was never in this land that we're talking about. It was nearby, but right. it wasn't... It was over on Flatbush and Maple Street, okay. and then it was moved into the park. I have two other things that I want to mention and uh, bring up. Two other little features that, like, when you all run out to Prospect Park and walk around, things that you can look for. Mm-hmm. One of them is there is a little cemetery over by Lookout Hill. Very hard to find. In fact, I think it took me like two tries to actually find it. This little Quaker cemetery, there's actually graves there from as early as 1820 that actually sit there. So the the park has been sort of built around it. Do you know who's buried there, Tom? A famous Quaker? Actor Montgomery Clift is, is buried there. The hunky Red River? Yes. In the Quaker tradition, they have very Mountie? small... Uh, Yes. They have very small headstones as befitting the tradition of being buried in a a Quaker cemetery, but it's actually designed by the guy who did JFK's headstone in Arlington Cemetery. So it's right here in this tiny out-of-the-way cemetery. It's very strange. Wow. Did you find it? I did eventually find it. I didn't go in it, but I did find it. Everyone also should go by the carousel, which is over by the Lefford Homestead, uh, and that was actually made in 1912, and it is absolutely gorgeous. And while you're over there, take a stroll through the zoo. Or even if you don't feel like visiting the animals, just walk the paths, walk the romantic natural paths, and take in the natural splendor of Prospect Park. You can just just look and notice all these things that look natural and just realize that was designed by two sparring architectural icons. Well, thank you for traipsing through the park with us. Please visit our website at BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I'll put up a lot of old-time pictures of Prospect Park, including a map or two. And thank you to our listeners who have written reviews on iTunes. Thank you very much. That actually helps us. And we've been uh, we've been doing very well on the podcast charts. And so that's good. <laughs> and it gets... It gets uh, it A gets chart more... we're sure you're keeping an eye on. <laughs> well, we, you know, we have to sometimes. Um, but it, it, get, getting more exposure and getting more listeners is, is always a good thing. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.